welcome to Reading Tolkien Podcast uh, episode, what are we, 14 I think now. So today I have with me Dawn Walls-Thumer, who is a Tolkien scholar and uh, fan fiction uh, writer. And in 2005, Dawn set up the Silmarillion Writers Guild. And how is that sort of going today, Dawn? What, what sort of community is that? Is that like uh, all these years later? <laughs> we are still going really strong. In fact, we just reopened our site um we the the Mm -hmm. software that we had been using for years and years was Ah. aging very ungracefully Mm -hmm. so we just changed over to a content management system and just reopened (laughs) like in march i think so we have a we have a pretty strong community lots of stories Mm. coming in and lots of really interesting discussions happening on our discord server Mm. oh that's fantastic discord's becoming such a such a fantastic way for communities to to be in touch with one another at least it seems to me although i haven't had all that much <laughs> contact with it, to be honest. But but maybe at some stage I'll, I'll join one. Yeah, that's fantastic. So you know, again, thank you for coming on reading Tolkien. It's it's a great pleasure to talk to you. And as we'll get into in a moment, um, I think you've written some fascinating things about fan fiction, of course, but also even in a more general sense, um, Tolkien as a writer. So I suppose just to to begin, and I I, I give this question to interviewees, all scholars who are, who are interviewees, how do you view, I guess, the state of Tolkien study, just in a very general sense, at um, at present? Yeah, just, just well, generally. I really appre- I appreciate you including me in that group, because I actually come at the question from probably an unusual perspective, because I'm definitely not a scholar in the typical sense of the word. So I do mm. have my master's degree in humanities, and at this point I've published peer-reviewed articles um, in fan studies and mm-hmm. Tolkien studies, but I don't work in academia. I've never worked in academia I have no interest in working in academia. I actually mm-hmm. teach middle school, so <laughs> I'm a teacher, but at a very different level. Um, but I'm an independent mm-hmm. scholar. Wow. <laughs> so nice. right now, yeah. the most exciting part of Tolkien studies scholarship mm-hmm. to me is just how welcoming the field has become to scholars like me, how there's been an intentional effort, I feel like, in a lot of cases to make room for voices of scholars who identify first as fans and not as academics and to recognize the contributions of scholars mm. who are coming into Tolkien studies through non-traditional ways like me. And so I find this an exciting time to be a Tolkien fan who at some point in the last 10 years also got to adopt the title of being a Tolkien scholar. And mm-hmm. I really think that those kinds of perspectives from fans um, that are being welcomed will be a benefit <laughs> to Tolkien studies. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree. And um, I suppose just uh, leading on on from that, in in the article that we're going to talk about today, which is from the uh, which was published in the Journal of Tolkien Research in 2016, I think. For those listening, the, the title is "Attainable Vistas: Historical Bias in Tolkien's Legendarium as a Motive for Transformative Fan Work." In that, <coughs> sorry, in that article, uh, which, as I say, we'll, we'll get into in more depth. I think it's interesting that coming from a, a fan and also a fan fiction writing point of view, it seems to me that you're able to more easily grasp the sort of the the nature of historical bias in, for example, the Silmarillion, which is really where your article is, is focused, uh, the first part of the article. It seems to me, and I, I don't know if you would agree with this, but more traditional scholars, if you like, may not see that in quite the same way because they're looking at different elements of, perhaps they're looking at, you know, source criticism or, or you know, different elements of, of, to- of the text. And that given that you're in fan fiction, I suppose, writing from a particular point of view and thinking about point of view very clearly, perhaps you coming from that fan fiction point of view, it gives you yeah, a different view, a different eye with which to see issues like sort of, you know, pseudo historical bias and things like that. So I'm not sure what you would, if you would agree with that, but um, I just put that to you as a, as a possibility. I would absolutely agree with that. Um, so, yeah, so I do right. very much agree with that perspective. And I really think it, it comes back to um, 
the starting point for a lot of fan works, which are gaps or holes in the text. So mm-hmm. one of my scholarly projects that that mm-hmm. overlaps mm-hmm. more with fans to the fan studies part of the um, JTR article that that you're discussing um, is the Tolkien fan fiction survey, which I've now administered twice. And my hope is that every five years I readminister it. I'm mm-hmm. trying to describe the culture of Tolkien fan fiction fandom and document how it changes or how it doesn't change over time. So I just closed the 2020 version of that two months ago. And actually, I finished mm. crunching the author data today. So that was kind of exciting. So on one of the, one of the survey, yeah, oh, wow. <laughs> this was timely. <laughs> yeah. um, so, but one of the survey items asks, and it, it's directed to authors <laughs> specifically, and it asks how much they agree with the statement, the gaps Tolkien left in his stories are an inspiration for me to write fan fiction. And almost 93% of them agreed or strongly agreed, which is mm-hmm. huge because fan fiction writers are definitely one of those groups of people where, <laughs> you know, if you ask two fanfic writers, you get three different answers is very applicable so to get 93% of us to agree to anything, I feel like is really significant. Mm. But I think it really highlights just how important holes in the story are to <laughs> inspiring mm. the story that we stories that we write. And I think that's just different from the approach that scholars take, you know, like you mentioned, like, you know, source studies, for example, and, mm. and, you know, talking to other scholars and just and, you know, having an advanced degree in the humanities myself and having done that kind of scholarly work also, it's just a very, it's a very different approach, but the historical bias aspect, you know, it creates like Mm. this giant hole in the narrative um, because Mm. you realize, Mm. once you realize the limitations of the perspective of the the narrator who was Pengaloth, who's never actually even named in the published Silmarillion, um, but he wrote quote unquote, most of the mm, Quintus Silmarillion, mm. but I mean, he was, you know, I always, I always joke around and say that he was like the worst choice as a narrator um, for the events of the first age from a historical perspective, <laughs> because you have like this immortal people mm. who are able to bear witness across the ages to things that, that happened to them and they never have to worry about dying and passing that on, even though a lot of them do die in the Silmarillion, obviously. And so who does Tolkien choose among those people? someone who's born in a historical (laughs) lull when not much is happening. And then before anything much can happen, he hastens him off, you know, into this hidden kingdom where he manages to not witness pretty much everything of importance until that hidden kingdom falls. And he's embedded among these like 200 Mm. other named characters and, you know, hundreds of other implied, but unnamed characters. And almost every single one of them has managed to witness more of the history he's writing about than him. So it creates this, and that's where it comes in the, you know, attainable vistas <laughs> um, in the title because of Tolkien's quote about um, unattainable mm. vistas, which is one of my favorite quotes from the letters of J.R.R. Tolkien, um, which is that the glimpses, the, it's the quote is glimpses of a larger history in the background in attraction, like that of viewing far off an unvisited island or seeing the towers of a distant city gleaming in a sunlight mist. So I feel like Pengaloth creates that like giant hole and all of invites you to consider all of those other potential perspectives. And so I think that's really the difference in why like fan fiction writers sometimes Mm. see it in a way that scholars don't, because when I present on this in a more scholarly context, like Mm. I have frequently have people come up to me from the more scholarly side of fandom and their minds are just blown by this idea. Whereas when I entered the fan fiction community (laughs) back in 2004, Mm. it was already like a common subject of discussion. It was already a part of the stories people were writing. It wasn't anything, 
you know, people are interested mm-hmm. in the work that I do and the documentation of what they kind of already feel like they know is happening in the text, but they're, they're just not mind blown in the same way that this, this is going on. That's fantastic. Um, and I think I had a similar, a similar reaction when I read your essay and actually I did listen to a couple of your talks on, on YouTube as well, which cover similar, similar material. Do you think part of the issue there is that in the published film, really, and at any rate, Pengaloth and Rumil as scholars are sort of obviously never mentioned, and that whole that whole metafictional facade, if you like, or system is actually not really alluded to. Is it where perhaps if Tolkien had finished the Silmarillion himself, perhaps it, perhaps it might have been. So I'm curious as to why Christopher actually declined to include a lot of that material in the published book, but I guess we'll never know why. <laughs> well, actually, on that front, Douglas Charles Kane. Um, Art of Reconstructed. You know, he went through. I don't know if you're familiar with that mm. book, but he went through and like matched up from the history of Middle Earth, where like each paragraph or each mm. line or each word, even. I mean, he took it down. Like, I was so thankful that he did that job, so I didn't have to. <laughs> mm. But um, he he had some interesting speculations <laughs> on that after yep. that work, and you know, just how and my own sense is that Christopher was very Mm. interested in creating like a consistent coherent narrative which i feel like you know after the fact he he sort of reconsidered a little bit if that was necessarily the right approach but at the time that was the approach that he took and tolkien was questioning Mm. in the 1960s when he wrote the texts that are included in myths transformed he was questioning the mode of historical transmission and he was like kind of excising pengaloth in favor of a quote-unquote mannish narrator and Christopher put a lot of work, a lot of weight behind that. Mm. I tend to less so just because Tolkien stated it, but he stated a lot of things in Myths Transform that he never did, like the whole Dome of Varda and, you know, his his cosmological mm. <laughs> um, ideas, which I feel like were, they're, they're considered as generally like the most radical, but I feel like changing the narrator is pretty darn radical too. Um, but he never, as far as I can tell in looking at like yeah, his later... Yeah versions of the Silmarillion that are published in the history of Middle Earth, you know, he takes from the later Quintus Silmarillion too, he takes out all mentions of Pengaloth. So it's like, and it was written right around the time when he was considering these ideas um, in the little scraps that we have in Myths Transformed, which I think we're in, I said, I just said the sixties, but I think it was actually 1958. So it wasn't quite the sixties yet um, going off the top of my head. So I might not be accurate there, but mm-hmm. um so it was like right around that time. So it's <laughs> almost right. like he yep. was preparing to do that work, but like so many things that he intended to do, he never actually got around to doing it because it would have been a scary amount of revision to change the perspective from elvish to human or mortal. Um, hmm. So I've, hmm. I've never, so I don't tend to think that, yeah. you know, yeah. I, I hate the Monday morning quarterback, Christopher Tolkien, because <laughs> he has given us like such an amazing <laughs> um, contribution in, the, in devoting his life to making his father's work available to us. But I don't, and I, like I said, I think he doubted, you know, his own choices mm. as well, but I would have definitely leaned towards leaving the narrators mm. in, even if it mm. created some inconsistency or it felt like it wasn't necessarily his father's final word. Um, just because I don't know that the texts reflect a, a mortal mm. narrator. Mm. I, I, I come down on the side that Pengaloth still wrote most of the Quintus Silmarillion, which is, you know, I should note <laughs> for anyone listening that's not familiar with that idea is not yeah. necessarily in <laughs> uncontested fact so there are definitely people that would argue with me on that point but i think i'd win the argument so i'm gonna go with it <laughs> yeah. yeah no i mean I, I'm, I'm certainly convinced um I, and i think just in my own reading of the cerulean I consistently yeah it consistently comes across to me as more or less 
an elvish perspective of one kind or another and to to really shift it to a human perspective or a mortal perspective would um would require quite a bit of not just quite a bit of sh- a shift in the in the whole tone and and the whole tone and the and i suppose perspective which uh, certainly wasn't completed as you mentioned but um I suppose we've we've been dancing around the the notion of historical bias a little bit, and these elvish um, law masters who who Tolkien considered to have written parts of the Silmarillion at various points um, in his life and creative process. So I guess in a more general sense, we should probably go back and <laughs> I should have asked you this before, but how, how would you characterize in a general sense Tolkien's use, I suppose, of his, pseudo-historical devices in the Silmarillion and and, and in what direction does the bias sort of skew, which is something I found really fascinating in your piece again? So it's probably no surprise that his pseudo-historical devices really mimic um, or are consistent with ancient and medieval historiography. For example, it's a story written from a clear point of view, even though, mm, like we just mm. finished discussing, it's not explicit in the published text. It's very explicit in the drafts from which that published text was formed. Um, those narrators come at it, for, come at history from a scholarly versus a popular perspective, similar to you know medieval and ancient historiography, where that was very much the province of the educated, often religious class, which of course doesn't play a role so much in in Tolkien. But you know, you don't really get to hear from the farmer or, you know, the innkeeper um, in the historiography (laughs) of the Silmarillion either. Mm. And there's also something that I found interesting when I was doing this research Mm. was that, that I had never thought of, even though I've studied, you know, my, my master's degree, my thesis, my master's thesis was on um, Beowulf. So I spent a lot of time on Mm -hmm. old English and Anglo-Saxon studies, similar to Tolkien. I may have been inspired there, (laughs) but something Mm. that I found Mm. interesting that I never really thought of <laughs> Indeed, was yeah. how often in ancient and medieval historiography, you have just a single explanation of a historical event versus understanding events as having multiple and complex mm. causes. Like we tend to like historians today tend to think of, and I know, you know, as a humanities teacher myself, mm. that's how I teach my students to view history, but it's similar in the Silmarillion, mm. you know, you think like mm. the downfall of Gondolin was caused by the betrayal of Maeglin or, um, you know, the fall of the Noldor was caused by Feanor's possessiveness of the Silmarils, and the kinslaying in Aqualande was caused by Feanor's possessiveness of the Silmarils. And you have these sort of like sweeping single causes where one person, <laughs> you know, you, you make mistakes at your peril in the Silmarillion, you know, you, you mess mm, up mm. once and hundreds of people die. Um, <laughs> and I realized, you know, of course, you could analyze those events and come mm. up with more complex causes. But I think that Pengaloth or, you know, the narrator of the Silmarillion tends to assign, you know, more of the blame in a, in a more singular fashion. So there's that's just kind of a general description of like how it historiographically mm-hmm. how it how it matches up in my findings. But um, probably the most interesting part Mm. to get into the second part of your question is just the presence of bias um which i think once you become aware of it becomes really unsubtle Mm. Mm. and that bias (laughs) because yeah and i was rereading yeah yeah (laughs) it's like yeah, sorry. I, I was rereading parts of the Silmarillion, and after I'd read your essay, and it was just, yeah, it's like, wow, that, yeah, that is just really obvious. Well, I think that's why so yeah. many people, when they first hear of this, and again, you know, this is not anything that was original to me. It was sort of in the air of the fandom when I first joined, and still is in the air. Um, mm. Mm. But so many people that for whom this is new that are really familiar with the Silmarillion, it's like mind blown moment because it's like so many things start to make sense. Um, 
to, mm. to, to many people anyway, as, as I've encountered them, but the bias skews towards, I mean, Pengaloth is the narrator and for, you know, people who maybe since he's never mentioned in the published Silmarillion, I should say something about who he is, I suppose. Um, so Tolkien did actually give him a, a very brief biography in the text Quendai and Eldar, which is, I believe published in history of middle earth, 11 war of the jewels for anyone who wants to look it up. Um, and so he was, mm -hmm. Pengaloth was a, was mixed Noldoran and Sindarin ancestry. He was born in Neverest, which was uh, Turgon's original um, sort of living space. I don't know if we can even call it a kingdom necessarily before he founded Gondolin. But if you look at the timelines, Pengaloth would have been mm -hmm. a very young man or even a child when um, Gondolin was, when the, the people of Neverest moved to Gondolin. So he, so he was locked up in Gondolin at a very young age, and therefore he was kind of sequestered from the history that he was writing about. But he survived the fall of mm. Gondolin, obviously, and went with the refugees from Gondolin to the mouths of Syrian, where Quendai and Eldar says that he learned much of the languages of the Elvish people. Of course, it's Tolkien, so his, you know, focus is on language. Um, but he learned from the other refugees from Doriath that were there of Thingol's kingdom um, that the Feanorians had had attacked um, mm. in the second kinslaying. And then he survived the attack of, of the Feanorians on Syrian. And mm -hmm. eventually he ended up in living with the dwarves in, in Khazad-dûm. And then there's like, you know, sort of varying ideas of, of kind of where he went after that. But, you know, he was, he was very much of sort of man of Gondolin. Mm. And of course, Tur so Turgon's biases are really reflected in, in Pengloth's writings, which, you know, and this is the kind of where I get a little fan fiction. It's interesting to speculate why, like what was the degree of intellectual freedom <laughs> in Condolin? You mm, know? Absolutely. Um, yeah. It's kind of fun to think about. So mm. was, so was, was he just, was that just what he knew culturally or was there pressure there? You know, it's certainly one of the more authoritarian realms that we see, but mm. anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm going down that fan fiction rabbit hole. So I, I yeah, won't go there. Yeah. I will leave those <laughs> stories to people who are listening to this to perhaps write for themselves. But because of that, you see, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Fantastic idea. yeah. <laughs> they can put them on the Silmarillion Writers Guild. We'd love to have them. Um, shameless <laughs> plug. But anyway, um, so you yeah. see, so you see that bias like almost entirely towards who Turgon's friends and enemies would have been. So so he he really like so Pengaloth really favors, of course, anything that comes out of Gondolin. He really favors anything that comes out of Doriath because a lot of his sources um, for languages, and I kind of extrapolate out that he would have learned a lot of history mm -hmm. from those sources as well. I don't see how that couldn't be. You know, it's not like people would get together and mm -hmm. be like, let's chat linguistics, but never yep. talk about the, you know enormous detrimentally detrimental battle that just happened in our realm. It's very similar to what happened to you. You know, that's not going to, that doesn't make sense. So I believe he learned a lot of history from them as well. But mm. then there's also, he also favors Nargothrand, which of course, you know, uh, Turgon, his king and Finrod Felagund were, you know, very good friends. And so it makes sense that that would have been mm. something he would have also mm. favored, but he's biased against certain groups as well. So he's, very biased against the Feanorians, which makes sense because Turgon blamed them for Elenwe's mm -hmm. death, his wife's death, um, on the grinding ice that she fell in the water while carrying their child, mm -hmm. Idril, and Turgon had the choice to save one or the other. I'm blanking on the text right now that that comes from, but I can, you know, certainly send it later if it's a like 
put it in as a footnote or something so people can look it up for themselves if they're interested. Yeah, no worries. But, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, and it says in that in that text mm-hmm. that Turgon had enmity towards the Feanorians forever after. So Turgon's, or um, Pengaloth's bias makes a lot of sense there as well. Mm. Um, he's also very biased, perhaps not surprisingly, against Arathel, Aeol, and Maeglin, the three that he really seems to put a lot of blame on for the you know, fall of Gondolin. So you see a lot of bias towards them as well in the texts. Mm. But um, I did, so what What I did was, mm. you know, I was seeing this, and this had been seen before. Um, Alex Lewis in 1992 did a presentation um, called, let me find the name of it, the title of his presentation. It was called Historical Bias in the Making of the Silmarillion. And it was the Tolkien um, Centenary Conference, I believe, Hmm. um, that he presented this at. And so he was the first Hmm. scholar that Hmm. I know of that identified bias, Um, even though he didn't have access to the history of Middle-earth, the full history of Middle-earth. A lot of the texts that I've relied on very heavily um, to do this, which I always think is very impressive of him. But um, yeah, so... So he identified it, but mm, mm. so I, I really wanted to quantify it. My my academic background, going back to undergrad, was in social sciences. So my inclination is always to attach numbers to everything <laughs> to prove that it exists. So I love quantitative mm-hmm. humanities, <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, much to the chagrin of my students who find themselves having to do math in English class. Mm-hmm. But um, so I quantified it in a few different ways. <laughs> um, two of them were in the JTR article that that um, we're talking about here. The first of all is was looking at who actually like is Pengloth mentions. Mm. So this was a pretty simple one. I just, I mean, it took a while to do, but I really just, it was pretty simple overall in terms of methodology. Mm. You just go through and you count every time a certain character is named. Um, and again, you know, we see those big three realms, Gondolin, Doriath, mm. and Nargothrand. Almost every single person in the top 10 on that list is from one of those mm-hmm. three realms. In fact, the only one who's not is Feanor, who actually mm. is the most mentioned character in the Silmarillion, with 208. Um, if you remove Sons of Feanor from that, he drops down to third, but he's still mm. very solidly in the top ten. But everyone else comes from or is an associated in a very close way with one of those three realms. <laughs> so that was the first way that I quantified it. Just, um, you know, who exactly is Pengaloth talking mm. about? Mm. But of course, you know, the number of mentions doesn't provide in and of itself necessarily a complete picture. So mm. I was also looking at just how they're discussed in the mm-hmm. text as well. Um, so, you know, here it's good, useful to perhaps compare Feanor, the most mentioned, with Thingle, mm. El- Thingle of Doriath, the third most mentioned. You know, both of them are kings of their respective people at one point or another, and both of them do some pretty heinous things. Um, mm-hmm. But how those, like, mistakes and you know, heinous things are depicted are very <laughs> yeah. different. Um, Feanor, of course, gets a, catches a lot of flack for what he did, rightfully mm. so, um, I would say, but Thingol gets a pass in a lot of ways. Um, <laughs> you know, I would encourage people who are listening to this and encountering this idea for the first time to mm. go back and read those chapters and think about how a lot of his deeds could be would be depicted if he was held to the same level of scrutiny that Feanor is, you know, we would, we would end up with a very different story, you know, his whole like imprisoning his daughter because he didn't want her to have a boyfriend (laughs) kind of thing, you know, doesn't, you know, kind of those sorts of things kind of get glossed over, you know, the whole sending Baron to, you know, on a death mission to get him a Silmaril and 
you know, all of those things tend to, the negative side of those tend to get Mm. glossed over. (laughs) So I definitely looked at that too, less quantitatively. Um, But I also looked at how the various Mm. realms are discussed. And first of all, I I followed sort of the same methodology. I looked Mm -hmm. at the number of words that are spent in describing each one. And again, and the graph is available um, through a lot of my, you know, social media and whatnot, Mm -hmm. because the graph is quite astonishing, like the number of words that are spent describing Doriath and Gondolin and Nargothrin compared (laughs) to literally every other place in Beleriand during the first age. So no place gets nearly the number of words, the page space Mm -hmm. that those three realms do. They're described in opulent detail. And that's where I came into the more qualitative sense. You know, they're Mm -hmm. described in this like sort of opulent, you know, just they sound like such beautiful, amazing places that you want to visit. And everything else is just kind of cursory, like the Feanorian realms, really. (laughs) It's just like, well, there were some hills and some mountains and there was a river, you know, oh, and a big lake. So it's more like the geographical yep. features and yeah, less yeah. like the human settlements themselves that get mm. described. And it's kind of interesting to me, like mm-hmm. this, mm-hmm. again, you get into this bias and perspective because the three realms that Pengaloth really paid attention to really existed because of the military defense of people like Fingon and the Feanorians, who, you know, if you look at the map of the Silmarillion, mm-hmm. they exist mm-hmm. in this, like, it's this literal, just like empty space on the map where if they weren't there, then Morgoth and his, you know, minions could have mm. just like shot straight down and all of those beautiful hidden realms would have eventually been discovered and wiped yep. out. But the, so those, but those defenses really received no page mm. time or mm. any sort of positive consideration. They just sort of exist without description. Um, and of course one mm. could say, well, you know, Pengaloth yep. lacked the, you know, exposure to them, but he lacked exposure to Nargothrin and Doriath as well, yet he spent a lot of page time describing those. So, so that's kind of how mm. the, so that was another way that I quantified it. Yeah, um, for sure. And it showed, again, that bias towards those, like, sort of big three. The two that I didn't include in the JTR article, well, I originally yeah, did, but that's fantastic. was super long, and the editors advised that I save some of this somewhere else. Because <laughs> it was ridiculous how many how long it took to, to go through <laughs> sure. all of my different data. But um, So I, I mm, kept in what mm. I thought were the two most interesting. But two other ones were battles. So I looked again at, like, the word count of battles. There's lots of them ah, in the Silmarillion. Yep. And pretty much if, you know, you want the media mm-hmm. to pay attention to your battle, then <laughs> media being Pengaloth, then you get people from one of those big three realms <laughs> to participate. Otherwise, <laughs> you, you end up with like 100, maybe 200 words spent. Some of the battles aren't even given names, even though they, you know, prove to be quite decisive. I've named them myself, mm. things like the not mm. great, not so great battle, um, battle 4.5, <laughs> because that way it makes it possible to talk about them. <laughs> since they're not named. But those are mm. almost unequivocally <laughs> the, mm. the battles that were the Feanorians participated in, but especially Fingon, who, um, and Alex Lewis, you know, the scholar in 1992, who first, as far as I know, was the first to identify mm. on the scholarly side of, of Tolkien studies, historical bias. He noted in his, in his mm-hmm. presentation that Fingon seems to bear an unreasonable amount of bias from, um, well, he didn't assign Pengaloth because he had no access to the text that, mm, um, mm. you know, would have identified Pengaloth as a narrator. But mm. he noticed that there was a bias against Fingon. 
And so mm, you notice mm. like Fingon's battles are the ones that don't get named and they're the ones that get a couple hundred words at most, even though in a lot of cases they again preserve those big three realms. Yeah. Um, so that I found really interesting. Mm, mm, and then the final yeah. thing I looked at that I was not included in the JTR yeah, article was death scenes, of which of course there's a ton in the Quentus Silmarillion. I think there's something like mm. 66 <laughs> characters that die in the Quentus mm. Silmarillion. Um, so, you know, George R. R. Martin was not mm. the first, um, but there's, there's death <laughs> scenes mm. tend to, again, the characters from those big three realms, they tend to get either funerals or mourning or both. And then there's a lot of characters like the Feanorians who just sort mm. of, they just sort of die. And, you know, there's really no mention of them being missed or mm. being sort of commemorated in any way. And it almost like dehumanizes those characters. You know, mourning is something that is like just such a human universal. You know, every culture in the world has its rituals around mourning, sure. you know, and every human being um, experiences it in some way. Um, so just the fact that, you know, and in some cases, mm. like Fingolfin, for example, Turgon's father and Turgon being, you know, Pengaloth's king, you know, is treated to like a very lavish funeral. Um, but mm -hmm. then, you know, if you read his death scene and Feanor's death scene, and I've actually compared them like kind of almost line by line, but you read them side by side, mm -hmm. then Feanor's mm -hmm. is almost clinical. It describes like, you know, this astonishing thing that happens to his body and it describes his sons as being there. But the only thing he really does is he kind of forces them to like double down on their oath which of course we understand as readers is a really bad idea and doesn't make him look so great in his final moments. But there's no mention of like his <laughs> sons, you know, mourning mm. him or feeling any sort of sadness or loss. And then he's just gone. I mean, he literally, he's, mm. he blows off into the wind and you know, his legacy mm. of course persists. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But as far as any sort of commemoration from his people, we never, we never hear of anything. So that was, that was another angle that I came at bias from and it was mm. a little bit harder to quantify but you know if you look at it qualitatively and you and you really mm. dig mm. into some of the death scenes of major characters and it's like once again like oh like you see that you see that bias coming through again <laughs> yep for sure um <clears throat> yeah that's interesting and I, I i love the graph of the um showing the the word counts of Beleriandic uh, realms. Um, and your mention of Fingon got me thinking about Hithlum. And it is interesting that, that Hithlum being such a major Elvish realm is given so little, given so little description as you, as you mentioned, apart from, oh, it's cold and wet and that there's no description of the settlements, things like that, which I'd always sort of tried to imagine when reading the Silmarillion. But I'm curious I suppose in this scheme, which really, as as you mentioned, shows bias against the the Feanorians. How do you see the the so called three great tales fitting into this this issue of bias? So the Baron and Luthien, obviously, which you've sort of mentioned in association with Thingol, but also um, the Children of Hurin, and of course we have that we have sort of a novelized version of of that now as well, and 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 of course uh, the fall of Gondolin with the Children of Hurin in particular. There's a sort of a very iterative and complex textual history with that story by itself, which in some ways is separate from the Silmarillion um, textual history. So I'm wondering if you've if you've had a if you thought of or considered um, the Great Tales, in particular the Children of Hurin, and how that might uh, fit into this this scheme of bias. And I know this is not a question I put on the, on the thing, so feel free to just to just uh, speculate if you like. But I'm just curious. Sure. Yeah. So I'm looking at my 
handy uh, list of character mentions, and Turin is actually the second most mentioned. He becomes the first if we exclude Sons of Feanor <laughs> from Feanor's mm, count. Um, mm, mm, so mm. he is, but I, yeah, I feel yeah. like his association with Doriath is always what I come back to in his story. And again, you know, I mean, he's yeah, he's a okay. walking disaster, yeah, yeah. but he's a That's sign like this sort of, <laughs> you know, it's this doom that was, it's something that was done to him rather than anything that he perpetuated because of flaws within mm, himself. Mm. So, you know, if you think of Feanor, for example, like his pride, his greed, mm. his, that's what, you know, it's like it, this internalized, you know, character flaw is the reason for his downfall. But Turin, mm, it's like this mm. external actor, yeah. you know, it, it's Morgoth, you know, cursing um, Hurin's family. And so it's this mm, thing, and we're, mm. so we're, un, we're to understand yeah. him as sort of this tragic character, um, even though... You know, I did, <laughs> because I love yeah. data and I love numbers, I did a comparison one time of what was more deadly to be in contact with the Silmarils <laughs> or mm. Turin, and Turin wins handily. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, yeah, that's, oh, that's, that's one, was one of the more popular things that I have ever posted on Tumblr, actually. It gets rediscovered every couple of years, and then it just makes the awesome. rounds again. Yeah. Yeah. All oh, right. Yeah. But I, I, I really feel like... Oh, yeah. I'll have to look that up. Yeah, I, I, seen I, can, that. yeah. I can send you the link to it. Um, but, you know, it, I feel like it's that association with Doriath again. Oh, awesome. You know, where it's like, well, we have this guy mm, who was yeah, fostered yeah. in Doriath and he was a favored character mm, by, mm. by Thingol. And so then he goes forth into the world and he just like cuts this like one mm, man swath mm. of destruction. So how do we, how do we account for that? You know, without like yes, making, yeah. without 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 pointing a finger at him, <laughs> and then you know by association casting aspersion on Thingol and mm. and and Doriath, and so I've always found that device yeah, you know within the yeah. his, within the the um, lens of historical bias, I've always found the device of this of the curse very interesting in that regard. Where Turin is concerned. Mm. Well, I was just rereading the Children of Hurin, the novelized version of of the story. Of course, much expanded upon the Silmarillion text. Or the so-called Narn, Narn version, and I was just at the part where Turin leaves Doriath, and the whole part is, is narrated where the Cyros, this elf Doriath, sort of haughty, bit of an asshole, yeah. to be honest. <laughs> um, you know, he 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 um, disparages Turin and and, <laughs> and the women of Doriath. Uh, sorry, the women of um, of Dorloman, where Turin is from, and you know, Turin throws a cup at him, and then and then there's this there's this moment where Turin leave Doriath to, to go back and I don't know, be with Baleg, of course, his 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 friend on the on the um the marches of Doriath. And Cyros tries to waylay him is the way Tolkien puts it. Um and of course they have a fight and then it's a, it's a strange little scene I, I find. Turin strips him naked and then and then chases him around. And then of course Thingol is about to cast judgment on Turin, but then we have Nellus who is this this elvish lady who witnessed the event and, and she provides this key evidence and then Turin is sort of exonerated. And then the text almost seems to want to blame Turin for not not going back to Doriath right away. And I've heard even scholars talk about this and say, well, you know, Turin was an idiot for not going back to Doriath because he'd been pardoned. But I, I feel like there's a tension in the text there because it's clear that Turin wanted to leave Doriath prior to that event taking place anyway. And then it's kind of a, and it's kind of a catalyst, but the text really doesn't want us to blame Thingol or his or his court even for for the events that transpire and, and it sort of tries 
to lay the blame on Turin perhaps a little more than he deserves. Yeah, that was just one instance where I where I thought uh, perhaps of that bias coming through. <laughs> I don't know if that 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 would count, but I'd say um, for sure. Yeah. And that's one I have to admit that like the Turin story is like one of my least favorite in the Silmarillion, so I reread it very rarely. Usually only when I have to. Um, oh, okay. So it's not one that I've, <laughs> I've actually ever thought of before, but right, I think yeah. it's a really excellent point, and it, it does show how, you know, it how there's this interest in mm, in mm. those the the main players of those big three realms as being seen as <laughs> mm. overall benevolent people, even when they weren't. Just to, to take a, a somewhat right turn briefly um i was also rereading lord of the rings recently i did did a bit of a read you know reread recently um of of, a couple of tolkien's books you know i got to the last couple of chapters of the return of the king um discussing aragorn and you know when aragorn is crowned and i don't know if you would agree with this but it it felt almost to me that tolkien was trying very hard to to make Aragorn look, you know, absolutely without flaw or, or blame, and yeah, you know, I, I don't know if you've thought about historical bias in the Lord of the Rings, which is a whole a whole different thing. But 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 the image painted of Aragorn, for example, in the text of the Lord of the Rings, and then the image you get in, say, the appendices, where we find out that he continues to you know make war, and he he sort of is so, sort of slightly different. And um, this sort of image of the benevolent king making peace um, is a bit at odds with with the the appendices, which are of course um, explicitly you know historiographical documents, which which were written quite some time after the events being described in the Lord of the Rings, etc. So I don't I don't know if you've thought about about the Lord of the Rings, but it seems to me that one could definitely make a case there as well that there's a bit of bias or, or at least an attempt to, in the case of Aragorn, to shore up his image as a as a benevolent ruler, for example, if we want to take a kind of cynical <laughs> perspective to it. Yeah, I would definitely agree. I've, I I work with the Lord of the Rings far less than I work with the Silmarillion, but of course, you know, the the narrators and the mode of transmission of it is so much better known than, mm, than mm, the Silmarillion. Mm. And so I, I feel like when you're you know, if you have that in your mind that this mm, is mm. this is authored by the hobbits, then you know you, that perspective feel you know you can that that makes a lot more sense mm, from their mm. point of view. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I definitely, I definitely think so that it. Yeah, I mean, the work that I've done with the Silmarillion, it would be super interesting to see somebody go through mm. and do similar studies with Lord of the Rings. It would be a lot more daunting just because it's so much longer, but. <laughs> There's far fewer characters that would be in, <laughs> but yeah, it, yeah, yeah. I, I would definitely yeah. agree that it's there <laughs> as well. For sure, yeah. Oh well, if anyone's listening and you want to, you want to take on that task, um, yeah, go for it. <laughs> but that that would be that would be fascinating. Why do you think these metafictional elements of Tolkien's fiction, his his corpus, and, and we've mentioned the Lord of the Rings as well, and, and of course, as you as you said, that's somewhat better known in that case because, of course, we have the prologue and the note on the Shire records and other uh, features of the of the book, which are um, which are of course published in, in the main volume, so uh, or in the first volume at any rate. So it's a bit more accessible. But why is it? Do you think that readers and perhaps there's an obvious answer to this question, but I'm interested in, in, in your take. Want to approach Tolkien's work as an unvarnished window, I guess, into this pseudo past, so that it's just like a, I guess, like a uh, like a novel. You know, you read the text and the characters speak, the characters think certain thoughts, and you take that as given. That's what they think. That's what they did. That's what they said, etc. But as you've noted, the the pseudo historical element perhaps or the metafictional metafictional devices uh, you know and, and as scholars are i guess increasingly coming to terms with they've long been part of tolkien's creative process right from the start so why is that only at least from my point of view coming into um, scholarly focus now and even in a more general sense 
I've noticed that some readers really resist that that interpretation uh, or that that metafictional lens through which to read Tolkien's stories. So I'm just curious as to why why you think that might be. Well, I think in terms of scholarship, I honestly think it's like a really scary thing, um, just because it calls into question pretty much mm. everything that we take as potentially fact. I mean, within you know, aside from very basics like Feanor had black mm, hair mm. or. Um, you know, Angband is north of Himring, kind <laughs> of, you know, like what, who would have a reason to distort those? But as far as like characters go and a lot of the details that are, that are used as evidence or are used to support like the really popular interpretations of, of Tolkien's work, you know, you add in this, this element of historical bias and the, and, you know, the use of the pseudo-historical and metafictional devices. And all of a sudden those things, those facts are on a lot shakier of ground. You know, I've, I've talked about, um, you know, the Feanorians, for mm. example. And, you know, once you realize that, or once, if you accept that the perspective you're being given is not only a very limited one, but one that is extremely skewed to disfavor this particular group of people, then it becomes possible to sort of flip the script almost. and mm kind of do like those mm. um, fictional narrators do for other characters who, you know, I've talked about Thingol, but, you know, if we want to talk, speaking of the Feanorians, you know, the general interpretation of his character is, uh, along with other characters like Celebrimbor, Sauron, Saruman, even Alay to an extent, is, you know, to illustrate mm. the dangers mm. of possessiveness of one's own sub-creations and, um, you know, to extending that further, you mm. know, it's been used to illustrate the dangers of, of technology or science run amok as well. Um, that becomes a more mm. challenging mm. interpretation if, if you don't necessarily look at the evidence as being as ironclad against those characters. So, for example, fan fiction writers, you know, um, mm. when they're considering the Feanorians who are ridiculously popular among fan fiction writers, just saying, including this one. Um, and I think it's because of that <laughs> historical bias in a lot of ways, which is what part of what I got into with the Attainable Vistas article. But mm. what fan fiction writers will often point out is, you know, there's a lot of things in the story that needed to happen, good things that needed to happen that were facilitated by, you know, some of the bad deeds of Feanor that then, you know, reintroduced a large contingent of the Eldar back mm. into Middle Earth where, you know, they brought the the technology and the willpower to fight these battles against Morgoth and then later Sauron, you know, and they, of course, then you get the whole, you know, Arndil mm, wouldn't mm. have existed and the Valar wouldn't have been brought over to fight the war of wrath and everything. So, you know, there, there's a lot of fans who make that case and you have a different narrator and a different perspective and you emphasize that instead of mm, the whole, mm. like, you know, greedy possessiveness of my shiny rocks sort of thing. And you end up with a really different story all of a sudden, which we <laughs> kind of have that story because, you know, the Valar really did the same thing with making the two trees. Um, you know, they had the lamps originally and it lit up the entire world. So everything had light yep. and that went pear shaped. Melkor did his thing. And instead mm. of coming up with a different solution that would have likewise illuminated the entire world, they chose mm. to raise up imp impassably high mountains and put all of the light in the form of two trees behind it, where it only illuminated conveniently their kingdom, left the rest of the world in literal darkness, mm. and also, you know, then consolidated this 
invaluable, like irreplaceable resource all in one place where it could eventually be stolen by Melkor and Ungoliant. And Hmm. they don't receive the same (laughs) scrutiny for possessiveness, even Hmm. though you could, again, flip the script and write that story from a very different Hmm. perspective. A lot of people have Hmm. or have written stories that assume that perspective. So I think that once you like remove those, you know, you, you lose the the really popular interpretation here of around technology and possessiveness and greed that so many people read into the Silmarillion and Tolkien's other works, and that really mean a lot to a lot of people. And so mm. it becomes really scary, kind of almost. That's, and I say yeah, that because yeah. whenever I talk about this in at like a conference or I write about it, then I I always have like my hands poised over the keyboard you know, ready to like spout off this, I don't know, amazing conclusion about what the implications (laughs) of this are for scholarship. And I've wimped out every single time because I don't know what the implications are for scholarship. It's like, trust nothing in the book. (laughs) (laughs) So what does that mean? You know, then, then there's, Mm. I don't know. So, I mean, this is, this is the closest I've ever come to discussing it. So it, I, I think it, it really makes it kind of scary and it, Oh wow! Well, it almost <laughs> feels like you're changing the rules of the mm. game a little bit, almost. Yeah. Um, and so I, it's like fan fiction is a great vehicle for exploring yeah, those questions sure. and those possibilities, but scholarship just feels like you know you're much more hemmed mm-hmm. in by the conventions mm. of of the discipline than you are when you're working in fiction. So I think that's yes, a big part yeah. of why scholars have avoided it. Yeah, and I, I mean, as I've mentioned. Oh, Sorry, go ahead. This, yep. You were asking about fans too. Do you want me to talk about? Because I have I have very definite opinions on fans too, and I think they fall in a little bit different of a category than scholars do as oh, to yeah, what their yeah. own, like resistance. I mm. think was the mm-hmm. word you used yeah, in the question, yeah. at least on my document that you sent me. Um, resistance to this. There, I'm going to pull more mm-hmm. from my my fan studies work because fan studies really recognizes like well, one of the mm-hmm. the big things in fan studies is the degree to which fans accept or where they locate the authority over a text. And so you have what fan studies scholars would call mm, affirmational mm, fans, mm-hmm. who are the people that locate that authority within like cr- the creator and sort of the ancillary people around the creator, like the publisher. In the case of Tolkien, Christopher Tolkien would be included in there. Um, you know, people who are seen as being mm. sanctioned to mm-hmm. make decisions around what the text means. Yes. But then on the other hand, you have, you know, your transformational fans, and that's usually where fan yes, study scholars yeah. place fan fiction writers. Um, and they locate authority within the reader. So the reader has the right to decide th- what the story means. And it doesn't matter mm, what mm. the original creator and his, her, or their, um, you know, sort of contingent of, of sanctioned um, spokespeople mm, would mm. want. So it's the fan that makes the decision. So if you decide that Feanor is the good guy in the Silmarillion, Mm -hmm. cool, Mm -hmm. go for it, run with it. That would be the transformational view. And they're often separated in fan studies into a binary, which I've, Mm -hmm. you know, written about before um, in my fan studies work that I think is kind of false because working Mm -hmm. with Tolkien fans and Tolkien fan fiction, you see that Tolkien fans occupy the entire continuum from people who are like super transformational and they do literally whatever they want with the text and they don't care <laughs> and they don't care how much it offends you. Um, <laughs> if you're a person that's inclined to be offended by those things all mm. the way down to, you know, super affirmational people 
that are very literally by the book that, you know, and, and also um, consider Tolkien's own moral beliefs or his own in what they read as his intended meanings in the text. And mm. so fans like fall on that continuum in various places. And even within fan fiction, and, mm. you know, like I said, fan fiction is typically depicted in fan studies erroneously, I think, as being a transformational activity. And I say erroneously because Tolkien fan fiction writers put a lot of stock mm. in Tolkien's authority. Um, in so much as I have some, some data from mm. the survey that I just finished yeah. crunching today, um, 16%, for example, would agree or strongly agree right. with the yeah. statement that it is important to keep mm. my stories consistent with Tolkien's moral beliefs. And yes, that's a minority, but it's still 16% that hold what is mm -hmm. really a, would be a pretty extreme view that they're not willing to write mm. it or read mm. it. Well, write it because this is authors specifically, not readers. I haven't done the reader data yet but they're not willing to write something if mm. they believe Tolkien would have been opposed to it. Mm. And similarly, 14% agree or strongly agree with the statement. It is important to me to write stories that I think Tolkien would have approved of. So again, a minority, but at the same time, you know, it just really mm. illustrates the diversity of viewpoints and people's comfort levels with distorting the text, as some people would say, or using yeah. alternate, I would have one time said heretical um, interpretations of the text, sort of like the historical bias stuff. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. A quarter of fans, a little bit more yes, survey data, yeah. last one that I, that I pulled out is specific to this conversation that a quarter of fans um, who are fan fiction authors disagree or strongly disagree with the statement that writing fan fiction lets me challenge Tolkien's worldview. So you have one in four fans that would feel that's inappropriate, even within this very transformational, mm. supposedly um, contingent of fans. And Usually it's yeah, kind of assumed yeah. that like everybody else is less is less heretical than we are Tolkien fan fiction authors. So I think that once you start talking <laughs> to fans who don't necessarily mm, read mm, or write mm. fan fiction, then um, you know, those numbers of those sorts of statements aimed mm. towards towards their fanish participation, I think you'd see those numbers probably go up. Um mm. but I mean I and I know in like talking to Tolkien fans yeah. That a lot mm. of people see like the appeal of the story for them is its moral or ethical grounding. So to for them to like flip the script as I did with Feanor and the Valar and the two trees, yeah. to them yeah. ruins the story. Mm. You know, I've heard people say and you know about I think about high fantasy yeah. in general, yeah. but especially Tolkien's I've heard it a lot about Tolkien, that they like that like sort of mm. good versus evil because our world is not mm. Mm. black or white. There's so many challenging shades of gray that we're expected to grapple with every single day of our lives that it's yeah. almost a relief to exist in a world where the good guys are good and the bad guys are bad and you know that to be a fact yeah. so i think that kind of probably explains at least some of yeah yeah you know i mean tolkien fan fiction writers are extremely diverse as my research yeah. has shown and i mean tolkien fans are even more diverse but um, mm, I think mm. that probably explains at least some of it is just that comfort sure. level with yeah. challenging that 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 authority um, of of Tolkien and his and his other yeah. you know uh, representatives. Yeah. yeah, it's really fascinating that you mention his worldview because this is something I've been thinking about. I mean, not obviously not so much from the the fan fiction perspective, but that's a really great way to approach it. But even in my own reading, I've been wondering about this question as to what extent this. And this is a, a huge issue, so we don't we don't have to get into this too, in too much depth. But uh, to what extent this um, image of Tolkien as a highly moralistic writer is true, and to what extent 
some of his writings are, if not contradictory, certainly not as philosophically, if you like, or theologically in harmony as some people want to make them out to be. And I know you've I've mentioned the children of Hurin and, and I I um I understand that's not your favorite story, but in my reading at least, that story is is um I think I've I've said before that for me it feels like it takes place in a different moral universe to the Lord of the Rings. It's much it's much less sort of morally circumscribed. It's it's if you want to use the word, it's more pagan. There's definitely there's a more the sort of the, the struggle between the sort of the if you like the pagan and the, the virtuous or the the pagan and the Christian if you like is more occurs you know at a at a more surface level um, than it does in the Lord of the Rings where you know the the sort of the the moralistic voice of Gandalf is much more readily. Um, apparent um so I, I don't know if you would agree with that but at least at least in my reading i, I guess i would be one of those fans who whilst not a, a fan fiction writer i would definitely um sit somewhere towards the middle in terms of viewing tolkien's tolkien himself sort of authoritatively and, and the reader's authority so i don't know if you would yeah agree with that that there are sort of those tensions within tolkien's writing but but i, I tend to think that's an important part that certainly popular scholarship of tolkien's books like and you know, not to cast aspersions but but like Corey Olson, for example, who is very popular, you know, is very much in the sort of the traditional reading camp. Although, as I say, I think I think there are some scholars who are starting to challenge that, if if only a little bit. <laughs> I would I would definitely agree with the the tension between the pagan and the Christian, which is not my area of specialty. But you know, I've I've observed um, myself, and you know, it's definitely discussed in the fan fiction community mm. as well, um, very much. And what I sometimes wonder, mm, mm. and I don't, I mean, this is just like me completely riffing off the top of my head um, without too much evidence to, you know, I have a whole like mm, pages mm. and pages of evidence for, you know, the, the discussion so far. I have no evidence for this one um, easily queued up to cite. But <laughs> what I've often wondered yeah. is like when he started writing the Silmarillion materials, you know, as the Book of Lost Tales, then, I mean, he was a young man. And he was mm. really just like playing around with mm. him and his friends, like writing stories. And, mm. you know, it reminds me, you know, when I was like a middle school girl and, you know, you had your spiral bound mm. notebook that you wrote stories in with your friends. And, you know, that was the audience. And so, of course, we all know that, you know, his love mm. was for, mm. you know, the, the Finnish stories and the Norse stories and, you know, the cultures that, that went around them, which were yep. pagan for at least part of their history and, you know, really informed the myths. Mm, but then, mm. you know, when Lord of the Rings came out, then, I mean, his, he was, I think he was, I wonder sometimes if he was more cognizant of, of an audience and the impression that the moral impression and the moral imperative yeah, that he had mm. to make his work consistent with his avowed religious beliefs. I don't know. I mean, he was at this point, mm. you know, he was aware that yeah. thousands tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people were going to read this book. And did he really want it to inspire them with, you know, pagan courage (laughs) or did he want that it to inspire them with, you know, some of the the Christian (laughs) values that he obviously could make coexist within himself. But, Mm, mm. and in reading his letters, you know, you see how often he was dissatisfied Mm. with how people interpreted the Lord of the Rings you know the um, what was it the the cult of mm, fans mm. or the deplorable cult, um, you know, and the, the yeah, yeah, you know, the use by like the anti-war, <laughs> the hippie movement, and so on. You know, that dissatisfied him that it was being used in that way. Mm, so, mm. 
I don't know. That's always what I've wondered if it's just like consciousness of mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. audience of writing for a group of scholars, most of them themselves Christian yeah, also yeah. who totally get what you're doing versus the general public. That's always been my theory on it. <laughs> I think I think there are a few scholars who will be doing. I think John Garth is writing a new book about Tolkien's earlier years, um, so that'll be interesting to see what he he sort of, sort of says about um, about some of that. But yeah, that's always fascinated me as well. Look, I guess just to to finish uh, finish out here, just a, a final question. I'm sure you've well, I don't know, but <laughs> maybe you've, you've heard of the the upcoming Amazon show which is going to look at the second age are you looking forward to that are you sort of aware aware that that's coming up and it's it's a it's a sort of fan fiction i guess in the sense that it's a you know obviously it's it's one that um, benefits from a studio and millions and millions of dollars and and creative team and everything else but do you see that adaptations like that can bring different perspectives i guess to 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 our approaches to to tolkien and i mean for me and i was talking to this talking about this yesterday with my my other co-host and we were looking at an article by a, a new york times writer uh, called ross douthat who you may have heard of but he he wrote an article about um the lord of the rings and um, this upcoming show and sort of said in the article that um that the show given that obviously it's not adapting a novel um, it's adapting in his words sort of unfinished notes or whatever um, which is not quite true but 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 anyway you know that this this is going to suffer creatively but from my point of view we need to expand our definition of adaptation to include you know not only the adaptation of novels complete works like that but also especially in the case of Tolkien period or the you know historical summaries and all the other kinds of shorter documents that he's sort of compiled especially about the second age and that that brings potentially at least a sort of degree of creative freedom that is actually liberating um, especially in the case again of the second age and can perhaps to some extent at least if not perhaps at first to the extent that some would, would want but but can challenge or expand or look anew at these stories and even Tolkien's own authority within them. So I don't, I don't know how you, how you would respond to that, but uh, yeah, I'd be curious sure. <laughs> to hear your thoughts. No, I'm definitely aware of it. It actually, we have a separate channel on the Silmarillion Writers Guild Discord called TV and Movies, I think it's called, um, that we set up specifically ah. when the buzz really started <laughs> yeah. around the Amazon mm. series, mm. Um, in part just to give like a space for that discussion mm. to happen, but also if that discussion's mm. happening in that space, then people who really prefer and not to be a part of it can also more easily mm-hmm. opt out versus having it kind of scattered across the whole server. So Mm. I haven't followed too much of the development of the show myself, aside from just, you know, Mm. moderating the server and seeing, you know, scrolling through when I see that channel has activity and just kind of scrolling through and seeing what people Mm. are posting. Mm. But, you know, I like sometimes people post links to news and I don't usually tend to click on those and read them just because, you know, I'm a a teacher in COVID times. So it's like my Mm. life is extremely busy. Um, even before we get to trying to have, <laughs> yeah. yeah, a life yeah, sure. um, that includes, you know, being an independent scholar and my husband and I are homesteaders. So we do quite a bit of small farming as well. Mm. Um, so I have a very busy existence. Mm. Um, mm. I was milking my goats shortly before talking oh, to lovely. you, for example. <laughs> um, but <laughs> yeah, just to give some context as to what life is like um, right here, right now. But, you know, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm always excited. And I, I guess, mm. you know, to bring this full circle back to bias again, and this time it's my bias, not Pengaloff's. Um, I'm always excited by anything that brings in new fans to Tolkien. Mm. Um, mm. I myself was brought in by the <laughs> Lord of the Rings film trilogy. 
um, Lord of the Rings book. Mm, I, mm. I realize this is super heretical to say, so I'm saying it at the end, if anyone's <laughs> made it this far, then, you know, if they switch it off now, then they still will have heard most of what I wanted to say. So it'll, it's all good. Um, but I actually would have, if you, had, if you had asked me at age, say, 21, what I thought of Tolkien, <laughs> I would have said, quote, I hate Tolkien because Lord of the Rings was ruined for me. Ruined. Um, it was obviously restored <laughs> at a certain point because mm. it was assigned as a mm. book in school. <laughs> and it was assigned as a book in school when I was in uh, sixth grade, mm, okay. which is age yep. 11, um, for, to translate for an international oh, audience. Wow. So that is, yeah, I realize yeah. now that I am myself a humanities teacher of that age group of kids. I teach middle school ages 11 through 14. So I realized that that was like really developmentally mm. a stretch for most kids at that age. And I realized there are people listening right now. They're like, but I read Lord of the Rings at age 11. And it's like, but I, a lot of kids just don't have even, you know, really gifted kids in reading, which is how it got assigned to me. Cause I was put mm. in that mm. class. Um, just really don't have the skills mm. yet to mm. deal with that, with a text of that level of complexity. So it ruined it for me. So the films, you know, when the, the trailers for the films came out, my boyfriend at the time, now my husband, you know, was like, oh, that looks so good. I want to see it. And I secretly thought it looked really good, too. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I, I didn't want to admit it because I avowed for at that point, like, <laughs> probably over 10 years that I, I didn't like Tolkien. But we ended up seeing it and I fell in love. And that, of course, drove mm -hmm. me to the books, mm -hmm. which my research um, in into Tolkien fan fiction at least that subset of fans, you know, is what, how it happens a lot of times that, you know, the, the films, mm. you know, cause we've had films to this point, you know, drive fans to the books and to the fan community where they often discover fan fiction. And then mm -hmm. fan fiction tends to drive them to read more books um, than they would have, or, or they, they claim, you know, this is what mm. they're saying mm. is that they would have, they, they pick up and read more books than, than they <laughs> feel like they would have otherwise. Mm. So I was very much, one of those people who otherwise, if it wasn't for, you know, Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings movies, mm. we probably would not be having this conversation right now. Um, and the Tolkien fandom has changed my life in so many ways, you mm. know, including mm. driving me to become a teacher that I can't even imagine, you know, what would have happened. So mm. to me, anything that like injects new fans into the fandom and, you know, brings in those, as, as you were saying, the, the different and the fresh perspectives, to me, tends I tend to view that as a good thing. Um, I mean, mm -hmm. I run a fan website, so I need fans in order to do that. And, you know, the Silmarillion <laughs> has never had a, a yeah, film or any sure. sort of adaptation made about it. And there's still the fandom has gone strong, you know, for now going on 20 years mm, um, online. Mm. But it's still, you know... <laughs> It will. It will bring. I, I like to hope that it will bring new people in who otherwise would never have picked up mm, Tolkien's works, mm. especially some of them that are a little more off the beaten path, yeah, like the Silmarillion. Yeah. So that's my hope for it. All right. Well, yeah. That that's a, a nice note on which to finish. I, I think. Um, so you know, thanks again for coming on, and I will definitely have links to both uh, your website and also the Silmarillion Writers Guild website and. And any other links you'd like me to put as well. Um, and yeah, hopefully, hopefully listeners can can find out more about you there and also read some some fan works. Just out of interest, briefly, you mentioned that you mostly write on the the Feanorians. So is that mostly sort of, it, I guess, in the context of Middle Earth or Valinor? Or I'm not sure how it sort of works, but <laughs> yeah. So most of my work is is pre darkening. So it's in it's set in Almond. 
Um, so I really, I really stand right, yeah. the whole yeah, yeah. of their existence, um, including some mm, really mm. offbeat things. Like I wrote, ah, a, awesome. I wrote yeah. a Home Alone. St- <laughs> I wrote a version of Home Alone starring the Feanorians, for example. So you know, so oh, wow. not even in Tolkien. <laughs> <laughs> and I have um I have a, a fifth age story. <laughs> yeah. yeah, why not? Yeah. <laughs> involving the Feanorians. Um it's oh, called wow. the Republic mm-hmm. of Tyrion that considers a sort of alternate universe mm-hmm. where Finarfin um creates you know, unkings himself mm. and and turns um Tyrion into a democracy, a representative democracy, and then the Feanorians start getting re embodied and you know, they find themselves in this sort of um this democratic city, oh, wow. <laughs> you know, with the whole rug ripped out from under them. And how do they respond? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. so I, I really run the gamut. Um, but most of my work, the yeah. bulk of my work is, is pre-darkening. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fantastic. Yeah, actually, that sounds fascinating. I'm going to have to look that up. All right. Well, <laughs> yeah, look, thank you again. That was really fascinating to get your perspective on bias in the Silmarillion. And as I said, there'll be some links there. And um, the good thing about the Journal of Tolkien Research um, is that it's open access too. So I can link that and anyone who wants to read that article, which is from the 2016 issue, you can go and download a PDF free of charge. And, you know, that's wonderful. So, um, and of course, anyone who wants to submit to that journal, I'd, I'd recommend it because you, you'll, you'll have you'll have perhaps a wider audience than, than you might otherwise with a, a restricted journal. So thank you again. And uh, I wish you all the best for, your, for the future and for the, the Silmarillion Writers Guild. Um, I'm going to definitely check out in more depth. Thank you very much. And I really enjoyed talking to you. So thanks for having me on your podcast.